Well, the word of the Lord comes to us today from 1 Samuel 27 through 31. Uh, we'll be reading this morning for the public reading from 1 Samuel 28, starting in verse 3. So if you want to turn there, it's page 250 in the Pew Bible. So we will finish up 1 Samuel today, uh, but originally 1 and 2 Samuel were one single book, so at the next opportunity we'll just proceed right into 2 Samuel and continue this sermon series. But we'll be looking at the last five chapters today of 1 Samuel. And would you stand to honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, beginning in 1 Samuel 28, verse 3, and reading to the end of the chapter. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. 
And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Let's pray. For the gift of your word, our Father, we thank you, and we pray for the blessing of your spirit to minister the word to our hearts and accomplish all good purposes that you have for your people. We pray it to the glory of your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever seen Rocky IV, the greatest piece of cinematic art in American history, why are you laughing? You'll remember the training montages. My brother Ted Cluck has written extensively about this. The training montages that make up a good portion of the movie where you have a contrast between Rocky Balboa and his opponent, Ivan Drago. And the contrast is painted in such a way that as these two men are preparing for the same fight, they could not be portrayed more differently. Rocky is out in the countryside of Russia somewhere in a log cabin, and his tools of training are primitive. He's chopping wood, and he's pulling his brother-in-law, Polly, on a sled, and he's running up mountains. And in between those clips, you see Ivan Drago in the state-of-the-art 1980s training facility with a team of scientists monitoring his every statistic injecting him with steroids, and so forth. Rocky's training is pure, earthy, human. Drago's training is artificial and even robotic. Though they're training for the same fight, the point of the movie is that these two fighters could not be more different, and therefore go USA <laughs> in the Cold War of the 80s. Well, there's a similar dynamic here. There's been a running contrast between Saul and David ever since chapter 16 when David is first introduced into this story. Saul, when he was introduced, he's presented as an outwardly impressive man. He's described as tall. He's from the town of Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. He's chosen to be king as the people's initiative. When they ask for a king, that's when God gives them Saul. By contrast, David is the youngest of eight brothers. No one ever would have imagined that he should be king. No one asked for him to be king. He's from Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, but he is God's choice to be the next king of Israel. And ever since David's anointing by Samuel in chapter 16, the Spirit of the Lord is upon David. And the same spirit who had previously been upon Saul has now departed, and instead an evil spirit is tormenting him. And beginning after David's bout with Goliath, when his 
uh, fame in Israel begins to grow, Saul becomes insanely jealous of David, and David then becomes his enemy as Saul hunts for him over and over again in an attempt to kill him. Now, we've surveyed to this point the stories of David's escapes, the numerous escapes from Saul. Here at the end of the book, David and Saul don't interact anymore, but there is one last contrast between them as the author weaves together two stories to make a very clear point about how these two men are different. And the reason I, I say that is because the way the stories are told is not in strict chronological order. If the author wanted to give us a chronological account of these two stories, one of Saul, one of David, he would have put uh, chapter 28 that we just read, he would have put that right before chapter 31. So we would have gotten all the story of David and, and then all the story of Saul consecutively. But instead, he pulled an event from the future into the mix to show us with chapter 27 and then 28 that he's setting up two dilemmas, showing us David faced a dilemma, Saul faced a dilemma, and then he shows us in the playing out and the, the aftermath of those two how the, uh, the outcomes for these men were very different. And in telling the story, he points us to one major difference between these two characters, one major difference that makes all the difference to our lives. And so we're going we're gonna to look at what that difference is after we have a chance to walk through these two stories together, and then we'll pull back and make some application. So I want to begin by looking at four movements uh, in these interwoven stories of chapters 27 to 31. The first movement is David's dilemma. David's dilemma in chapter 27, 1 to 28, verse 2. At this point, David is weary. He's been on the run for Saul, and he's escaped from Saul so many times that he finally decides it is time to take dramatic action to ensure his security. So notice what he says in 27 verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. David decides to leave Israel and go sojourn among the Philistines again. It's important to recognize here, David is not acting in faith. He's simply talking to himself. Notice he said in his heart, he reasoned without inquiring of the Lord and decided to make the same move he had made back in chapter 21. In chapter 21, again, God was gracious to him. He delivered him from a tight spot when he was among the Philistines, but that wasn't David's brightest moment. That was the event where he had to pretend to be insane in order to escape the Philistines. Well, David decides to do that again, but he doesn't decide by faith. He goes up to the city of Gath, once again to King Achish among the Philistines, but this time, in contrast to chapter 21, this time he has 600 men with him, the 600 men who've gathered around him during his time in the wilderness and since David has an army, King Achish seems to be intrigued. And to think to himself, well, if David has this many men with him, he must be defecting to my side. And 
this could be a real military asset. And so Achish allows him to stay in the city of Gath. And we are told that when Saul hears the news that David is among the Philistines, he gave up pursuing him and did not go after him anymore. So far, so good. David's plan is working. But then David ends up in a terrible dilemma. And it begins with him asking permission of King Achish to be given some location to live outside of the city because probably in David's case, he wanted to get away from Achish's watchful eye. But he justified it by, by uh, making it sound like he had the, the Philistines' interest at heart. Why should my 600 men be a drain on your resources here in the city of Gath? Why don't you give us a place uh, away from the city? And so Achish agrees, gives him the remote city of Ziklag. And David and his 600 men go and live out in the country in this town of Ziklag. And from there, they engage in raids but they are raids upon the enemies of Israel. David leads his men against the Gerzites, the Geshurites, and the Amalekites. When you hear that, you should have a, a bell going off in your head. The Amalekites were the people Saul had been commanded to uh, annihilate in chapter 15, but he had failed. So now David is taking on them, among others. David would leave no one alive when he went on these raids. He didn't want any word coming back to Achish about what he had been doing. And so when he'd bring back the spoils of war, Achish would ask him, where have you been raiding today? And David would report that they'd been raiding against the enemies of the Philistines, including some of his own people, Israel. And by this method of deception, David earned or gained Achish's trust as a faithful servant and a military leader. Seems like he has it all worked out. Maybe he doesn't need to rely on God after all, right? Wrong. Notice what happens in verses 28, uh, chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David is now between a rock and a hard place. Because at this point, he has two choices. He can go with Achish into battle against his own people, Israel. Not only would he betray his own people in doing that, he would forfeit any right he would have to be future king of Israel. Can you imagine the leaders of Israel crowning as king a man who had just worn the enemy's uniform? And so that's one element of his dilemma. The other element is he could refuse to go into battle against Israel, and he would blow his cover with the king of the Philistines. And then he would be in a worse position than he had ever been with Saul, because the Philistines would have him. And so David is in quite a dilemma. What comes next? The author will tell us, but not before taking uh, a detour to tell us about Saul's dilemma. That brings us to the second movement in, in chapter 28 that we just read about Saul's dilemma. The Philistines have mustered at Shunem, and they're getting ready for a massive invasion into the land of Israel. Saul, as king of Israel, defender of Israel, wants to know what to do. And so, He's asking the Lord to tell him, give him some kind of guidance. 
But the problem is Samuel has died. He can't consult him. And God answers through no other prophets. He doesn't answer through any dreams. And he doesn't answer through the priestly tool of inquiry known as the Urim. And in the face of God's silence to him, Saul's mind goes to a very dark place. It was strictly forbidden in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 to 14, to ever consult a medium or a necromancer, to to try to get in touch with the dead. That is a strictly forbidden practice in Scripture. But Saul decides he has no other alternative. In fact, the irony of this whole situation is that as king earlier in his reign, Saul had been the one to drive out the mediums and the necromancers from the land. And yet here he is, desperate to have someone who can consult the dead for him. And his servants get intelligence that there is, in fact, one woman they found at a place called Endor. And Saul disguises himself, and with some servants he goes. He has to actually go into enemy-occupied territory. So he puts his own life at risk to go find this woman who is a medium. And at first, she refuses to help. She says, don't you know King Saul has put the mediums out of the land? I'd be taking my life in my own hands if I help you. She doesn't realize that Saul. Saul swears to her by the Lord. There's some irony. Swear by the Lord as you break the Lord's command. But he swears to her by the Lord. Nothing bad will happen. And so... She asks, whom do you want me to call up for you? And he says, call up Samuel. And according to the text, the way that it unfolds, Samuel actually was brought up. And Samuel speaks perhaps through the medium or perhaps directly to Saul. But somehow Samuel communicates to Saul from beyond the grave. Is this telling us that the practice of necromancy is a, is a normal practice by which the dead are able to be contacted in this world. No, the text is not saying that. In fact, the, the broader teaching of Scripture on the nature of death is that to be, to be among the realm of the dead is to be cut off from this world completely. So there's no reason for us to assume that this was normative. It seems to be an exceptional situation that God permitted in his purposes. And the reason I say that is because of what it says in verse 12. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. It's almost like she didn't expect to see him. Whatever her normative practice was, this seemed to be out of the ordinary. And so she cried out upon seeing Samuel coming up from the dead. So Saul inquires of Samuel, and Samuel has nothing new to say to him that he has not said before while he was alive. The Lord has rejected you because you disobeyed him. The Lord is tearing the kingdom away from you. He's giving it to your neighbor, David. There are no words of guidance to Saul. There are no words of hope. There's no direction. It's all warning of what is to come, that Saul and his sons will soon be in the realm of the dead with Samuel. So we have here at the end of, verse, uh, of chapter 28, two dilemmas now that we've seen. One dilemma of David between a rock and a hard place among the Philistines. One dilemma of Saul facing the Philistines and having no word from the Lord about what to do. These are two dilemmas of their own making. Both of these men have gotten themselves 
into messes, but how the stories differ in their outcomes. And so we're going to move to the third section in chapters 29 and 30. We see David's deliverance. David's deliverance, chapters 29 and 30. The author takes us now back in time again to the time of of when David was with the Philistines and to their initial musterings for war against Israel at Aphek. And here, not only Achish and his forces are coming, but also the other Philistine lords from the other cities are coming and bringing their forces with them. And they notice, the other lords notice that David and his men are there with the forces of King Achish. Well, the other Philistine lords don't know David, they don't trust David, and so they go to Achish and they tell him, don't you get that you cannot send this man into battle? What kind of opportunity would you be giving him to get back in the good graces of Saul? He would betray us on the battlefield. And so they press and they press, and Achish pleads, and he tries to defend David, but eventually he realizes he can't win this argument. And so he goes back to tell David the bad news. David, I'm sorry. I trust you. I know you're a faithful servant. But the other lords are not willing to allow you to go into battle with us against Israel. And at this point, David says, oh, shucks. Darn it. I really wanted to go. And he and his men, they head back to Ziklag. So David is delivered providentially from his dilemma by the will of the Philistine lords. This is an illustration of the principle of Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The Lord turned the hearts of the Philistine lords in the direction he wanted them to go so that his servant David could be delivered from this dilemma. And all is well, or so we thought. Because as soon as David and his men get back to Ziklag, they find that it's been raided, burned, plundered, and their families have all been taken by the Amalekites. This had to be a low point in David's life. Nevertheless, he and his men regroup, and they head off to find their enemies And on the way, they happen upon a discarded Egyptian slave, this man who had belonged to an Amalekite, but he had gotten sick, and so he couldn't keep up with the army, so the Amalekite had just thrown him to the side. David and his men, they find this slave, they feed him, they give him his strength back, they pledge to him that his life will be spared if he will lead them to where the the Amalekites are. Well, he becomes the key piece in the providential working of God to lead David's army to the the encampment of the Amalekites where they're dancing and celebrating their recent victories. And there David and his men completely overwhelm the Amalekites, recover everything that had been taken from them, their families, the plunder, and they are victorious. Everything that was taken is restored. And then the story of David in 1 Samuel ends with David engaging in two acts that are showing the way, uh, preparing the way for him to be king. One is that when his men end up in some disunity after the battle, some of those who had gone into battle are angry at some of those who had stayed with the baggage out of exhaustion 
when they start to fight against one another, and, and some of those who went plead that, that those who didn't go to battle with us don't deserve any spoils, David issues a statute that the one who goes into battle and the one who stays in the baggage, their, their spoils will be the same. And it tells us that that became a statute in Israel for the armies, David engaging there in a kingly act of ruling and administration. And then the story of David in 1 Samuel ends with David taking some of this plunder and sending it to the elders of Judah. And it's a list right there at the end of chapter 30, a list of the elders of Judah uh, in various cities of the tribe of Judah where he sent plunder. He sent gifts as a way of preparing for the day when the tribe of Judah will declare him king. And David will reign as king beginning with his own people, the tribe of Judah. So the Lord is gracious and delivers David from his terrible dilemma. By contrast, when we get to chapter 31, and now the fourth movement of this text, we see Saul's destruction. Saul's destruction. This is a short chapter, and it's very matter-of-fact. Saul is a king who has no direction from God. He's an ineffective leader in battle, and the Philistines completely rout his troops. And up on Mount Gilboa, Saul and his sons are fighting. His three sons are struck down, Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua. And then the, the arrow of an archer finds its way to Saul. Saul knows that he cannot win at this point. And so he begs his armor bearer to run him through with a sword. He tells him, if, if, if you don't kill me, I'll fall into the hands of the Philistines, and that would be worse. But his armor bearer refuses to kill him, so Saul pulls out his own sword and falls on it to take his own life there on the battlefield. The irony of this story is that the elders of Israel back in chapter 8 had come to the prophet Samuel and said, give us a king who will go out for us and fight our battles. Give us a strong man in whom we can trust so we don't have to rely on the Lord anymore. Well, Israel, behold your strong man, fallen before his enemies, taking his own life. Saul, who's described as tall, which in Hebrew is Geboha, from the town of Gibeah, falls slain on Mount Gilboa. And that's the end of the story of Saul. The next day, the Philistines come and they strip the slain. They cut off the head of Saul from his body. They send news throughout their country. They, they hang his corpse and the corpses of his sons from the wall of the city at Bethshan. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead, we've seen them before in chapter 11, the very first city that Saul delivered from the Ammonites, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, in gratitude to Saul for what he had done for them, they arise and they go by night into the town of Bethshan. They steal the bodies of Saul and his sons, take them back to Jabesh, and there they burn the flesh. It wasn't customary to burn bodies in Israel, but in this case, the advanced state of decomposition would seem to warrant burning the, the flesh that was on the bones, but then they took the bones and they buried them to give Saul and his sons at least an honorable burial. One more indication in the Bible of many that what we do with the human body in death matters. 
that this is an important thing to think about. But it's one small bright spot. The heroism of the men of Jabesh Gilead is one small bright spot in an otherwise very dark story about King Saul and his end. So we have here in these chapters two dilemmas caused by two messes that these two men make, and yet two very, very different outcomes. So my question is, what made the difference between David and Saul. Here I want to take us back and point out something that I skipped over before. In chapters 27 and 29, which are about David, there is no mention of God at all. None in chapter 27. There's actually one mention in chapter 29, but even then it's on the lips of Akish in, chapter, in verse 6. So, so God is largely absent from chapters 27 and 29. And I think that's the author's way of showing us that what David is doing in trying to control the situation himself is not taking God into account. And that's why he ends up in this mess. And the Lord is gracious and delivers him, but David is not acting in faith in chapters 27 and in chapter 29. But then when he gets back to Ziklag, I want us to note something as we revisit now this moment in David's life. Go to chapter 30, verse 3. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. This had to be the lowest of the lows for David. He'd escaped narrowly from Saul so many times. He had been in a bind among the Philistines to see the Lord deliver him, only to come back and find his family is gone, his town burned and plundered, and his men talking about stoning him because of his ineffective leadership. What does a man do in this situation? The end of verse 6 tells us, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. The faith in David that had burned down to the point of embers caught fire again. Sometimes what you need for those glowing embers to catch fire is for everything else to be removed so that the oxygen can get to it. Everything else to be stripped away so that at rock bottom, you have nowhere else to turn. And there was David. And there was enough faith to be rekindled again and strengthen himself in the Lord his God. And then to act in obedience on the basis of this faith that was still there, though he had not acted on it in some time. 
Notice how verses 7 and 8 proceed. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. David's faith rekindled. He now inquires of the Lord. He obeys the Lord, and he leads his men to victory. So this brings me to my first point of application today. It is this. True faith will never be extinguished either by circumstances or by personal failures. True faith will never be extinguished either by circumstances or by personal failures. If you have faith in the promises of God that are held out to you in Christ, that faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in you, there is no spiritual life. There is nothing in you that could give rise to faith if it were not a gift of God through the miraculous work of the new birth, birth of the Spirit. Now what that means is that if you have faith, if it is God's work in you, God will certainly bring to completion what he has begun. God will not allow the spiritual life that is in you to burn out if it is truly from him. The Spirit of God who imparted to faith to you will sustain that faith no matter what you may go through, no matter how low it may burn. At some point, you will see it come into flame again. So have you in your life, believer, turned away from the Lord and made a mess of things in your life? How do you respond to that? Do you assume that, well, I've now dug this hole, I'm now consigned to live in it? Or do you recognize that down in that hole you've dug, you're more primed than you've ever been before to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God, just as David did? If faith is there, it will come out. Now, there's a very strong contrast when we look at Saul. Notice how different it is. Go back to chapter 28 and notice the chilling words of Samuel given to Saul in verse 16. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. If God is against us, who can be for us? Saul stands to us as a warning of a man whose life had gone so far into sin that he was beyond hope of repentance. The Lord had become his enemy. We have one story of David where faith is rekindled, where hope is reborn, where obedience follows. And then we have another story of Saul where there is nothing but fear. Nothing but fear left in him. 
by the end of this account. And that brings me to my second point of application here. Number two, the hardening effects of sin can accumulate to a point that is beyond hope. The hardening effects of sin can accumulate to a point that is beyond hope. There is a hardening that occurs in the heart when we get our, give ourselves over to sin. And at some point, God hands us over so that there is no more hope of repentance. You see this trajectory in Saul. In chapter 13, he refuses to wait for Samuel to inquire of the Lord before he leads his army into battle. He, he's pressed more urgently to, to answer the circumstances at hand than to wait on the Lord. In chapter 15, he's given a very clear task by the Lord, but he instead obeys the voice of the people by sparing the best livestock and the king of, of the Amalekites as they go into battle. In chapters 18 and following, his jealousy against David begins to rage so that he pursues David at every turn and attempts to murder him over and over. And in the course of that, he actually does murder the priestly family at Nob, thinking that they are allies of David. And the trajectory of sin culminates here in chapter 28 with him seeking a word from the dead in contrast to God's command. Not all sin is equal, but all sin without repentance will lead us to eternal death. What matters is the trajectory of sin. If we do not interrupt that trajectory by repentance, by turning again to the Lord in faith, we are on the same pathway as Saul toward a hardness where there is no more hope. So are you in the habit of thinking that little compromises with sin are no big deal? After all, God's not a legalist, is he? You can always clean up your act later. If you, if you go a little too far, you can always repent later, right? If that's your mindset, I want to urge you to repent now. Repent of that thinking now. Because repentance is not something you can plan to do later. If you are convicted over the nature of your sin, if your sin is as hateful to you as it is to God, then you must turn from it now. There's no making peace with it for a little while until you can turn from it later. If you are not taking advantage of the Lord's opportunities to repent today, why would you think he owes you another opportunity somewhere down the road? So if you're a believer in Christ this morning, if your faith is holding on to him, I hope that this story of David is a, a rich encouragement to you of what God can do, even in those moments when we make a mess of things. If you're an unbeliever, if you don't know Christ, or if you're a believer, but you've allowed sin to have safe harbor in your life in some way, then I pray the story of Saul stands as a warning to you, a warning to turn from sin, to embrace Christ by faith. Jesus, when he was betrayed, when he was tried, when he went to the cross, all of his disciples failed him in some way, but there are two stories among the disciples that really do stand out. One is the story of Judas, who betrayed him. 
And Judas, in the wake of that betrayal, was overcome by guilt, darkness, to the point that he lost all hope and went and hanged himself. But the other story that really stands out is the story of Peter. Peter, betray, uh, Peter denied that he knew Christ three times when he was under pressure trying to save his own skin. But Peter's outcome was very different. He wept bitterly over his sin, and yet he held on until he saw the risen Christ the following Sunday. And then the risen Christ restored him. And by the time you get to Acts 2, it is Peter filled with the Holy Spirit who is proclaiming the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 believe as the church is born. And Peter's standing in the early church is never in doubt after that point. What made the difference between Judas and Peter? I think it's what Jesus says in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32 at the Last Supper. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There is no prayer of that nature recorded by Jesus for Judas. In fact, the only time Jesus mentions Judas in prayer in John 17, verse 12, is when he names him the son of destruction, whose act is in fulfillment of the scriptures. What made the difference between Judas and Peter was the intercession of Jesus Christ. In the end, Peter held on to Jesus because Jesus was holding on to Peter. Brothers and sisters, let us again today, by faith, take hold of Christ, the one who has taken hold of us and will never let go. We're going to take hold of him again by coming to the table and eating and drinking by faith in remembrance of what he has done. And so I want to invite you to, to the table today if you are a believer in Christ who has professed your faith publicly and is a member in good standing with the local church. Not necessarily this church, but some church where you have oversight. We're going to come row by row in just a moment where you can come by and grab uh, one stack of, of two cups. We have the two elements together in that stack. If you're in the overflow, we'll have a pastor over here to serve you over by the nursery counter. If you are not a believer, I invite you not to eat with us today, but to come to faith in Christ and to seek to identify yourself as a disciple of Christ through baptism. We would love to talk to you more about that. If you have any questions for us today, please let us know. Let's take a moment of silence as we prepare to serve the table. Would you bow and uh, seek the Lord in prayer for a few moments as we prepare to serve?